everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. That was the noise. I'm not sure what I don't know what tune that is that I just inspired, but that was the noise that our email made in college when I first discovered email back in 1996. Yeah, underneath a big old rock in the woods. It's just like, oh, what's this email? It was a new thing, and you had to go to the computer lab to open your emails and uh, you got your own college email address and it made that kind of uh, rooster noise and a little rooster would appear on the screen whenever you got a brand new email while you were on your email. I think I remember that, yeah. The problem was I just discovered email. I didn't really know what chat was. That was like chat windows weren't a thing yet or maybe they were, but I just hadn't, you know, discovered them. Because it was 1996. Yeah. So I, I would spend like all afternoon in the computer lab just sort of having conversations via email. And I would be getting all of these emails all the time. And everybody would do this sort of thing. So the entire lab was constantly filled with this little chime noise. <laughs> it, it was it was pretty, pretty spectacular. If only people learn how to turn off speakers. Anyway, my name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic for The Rap and Bloody Disgusting. And everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. And good golly, I'm old. You are, sir. I'm an old, old man. But we love you. And, uh, yeah, this is the Letters Podcast here on the Critically Acclaimed Network, where you get to control the conversation. We read your letters. We answer your questions. Uh, we give you, you know ideas for cool stuff to watch. We respond to your criticisms about our criticisms. Uh, last week we reviewed every single Friday the 13th movie just because you asked. Um, it's all on the, it's all on the board, basically whatever you want. I'm fighting a sneeze. It's it's cold season. Something's going around. Everybody's been oh, a little. Oh, for me, it's just allergies. If, if you've been listening, you've noticed that my lungs have been like slowly exiting my body uh, <laughs> over the course of the last month. Uh, they're finally kind of coming back in. I've been able to coax them back in with some yeah. warm water and warm stories. I visited my mom earlier this week. She lives uh, like half an hour away, mm. and um, she has a garden, and her entire patio is just covered in yellow pollen. Like, oh, you could lovely. sweep it up, and it would just be, like, a whole thing. Like, oh, I didn't know this wasn't gold. Luca, get off the counter. <laughs> well, the pollen... I'm getting the cat. Hang okay. On. Uh, pollen, uh, I'm sure just saying that, like, saying that you have this entire patio Luca, covered with pollen has, counter, <laughs> has activated some allergies in some of our listeners uh, just hearing about that. Uh, I'm not allergic to pollen, but if you were to say something like that about, like, say, pet dander, that would that would do it to me. That would get my nose sneezing immediately. Uh, I'm, I'm allergic to uh, pollen. Mm-hmm. I'm allergic to dust. And I'm actually mildly allergic to cats. But for whatever reason, Sergio and Luca don't really affect me too hard. And I'm really glad. Mm-hmm. I, I have because that I love them I'm, so much. I'm allergic to some cats, but not others. No. Some I'm like really deathly allergic to, and some just nothing at all. Anyway, uh, anyway, well, we need to get going. So let's read some letters. This is oh, by the way, this episode is uh, going live on Thanksgiving. So if you celebrate Thanksgiving, happy Thanksgiving. If, uh, you, don't, if you don't celebrate Thanksgiving, hey, Twilight Zone marathon, sweet. Uh, and also uh, over on the Patreon page, Patreon.com/slash/CriticallyClaimedNetwork, uh, we have a Thanksgiving special for the Cancel Too Soon monthly movie, where we're reviewing the Thanksgiving. That almost wasn't, in which the first Thanksgiving was rescued by a talking squirrel. 
And we're in a really foul mood on that podcast. Oh my that god, a, did we hate that? That is a one. really, really bad TV special. Holy crap. So uh, anyway, we just we're thankful for you and we just want to say thank you very much. And if you're listening on Thanksgiving, we hope you have a great holiday. Uh if not, it's just another letters episode. So let's move on. Let's move on. Here's a letter from Luke. Hi Luke. Hi Luke. Uh hello, gents, he says. Hi. Uh lately I've been thinking and trying to articulate the message of a story being told in a movie and how it is sometimes more important than how it is told. Hmm. Especially that there are some directors who put together a film in a way that perhaps feels a little like an alien trying to emulate the human experience <laughs> and how that's okay for one reason or another. Uh, the prime example that I find myself focusing on, and please bear in mind that I love all three of these things, uh, most of Christopher Nolan's work. Okay. Especially Interstellar. Oh, right. Yeah, agreed. It has a lot of weird dry monologues, but it's all about love and how it connects us all, and I feel ultimately succeeds in telling that story. Uh, number two is Ryan Johnson's Looper, mm. uh, which goes even uh, goes so far as to tell us how everything ha- is happening is an important. The important thing is that it is happening. So let's focus on exploring everything else that is going on. Hmm, I'm not sure if I got that from Looper. I'm but, not uh, sure if I agree with that interpretation, but I can see where you're coming yeah. from. That's a, beauty thing. That's a beautiful thing about art and a lot of great stories is they can be about multiple things simultaneously. Mm. Even, or they, oppo- even opposite things. Exactly. Yeah. So what you take away might not be what I take away, but that doesn't make it less valid yeah. necessarily. Uh, and pretty much everything I can think of by David Mamet, where almost no one acts or talks like a normal human being. <laughs> but it works because everyone acts and talks in a, the same as slightly askew to normal manner. Yeah. Uh, that, of course, that's a storytelling style. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, of course, there is the complete opposite where a director just doesn't know what the hell they're doing. For okay. example, there's also examples like, say, Troll 2, <laughs> uh, where thank, <laughs> thanks to Best Worst Movie, we have Claudio Fragasso explaining all manners of the human condition he feels he is exploring in that movie, none of which comes across and the least throughout that wonderful madness. Um, I, I, don't, I, I, I don't need I to a... talk up Troll 2. I think like the cult kind of rose and it's actually fallen again now, mm-hmm. but uh, I, I pick up on the whole ve- uh, veganism thing they're getting at. A little bit. That's yeah. about as far. Oh, oh, and uh, it's very uh, conflicted on the idea of hospitality. You see these signs? <laughs> hospitality. And you can't piss on hospitality. I won't allow it. It's a good point. Yeah. You, mm. can't, you can't piss on hospitality. That I is mean, the theme of that movie. I mean, it, you can. Mm. It's ill-advised. Yeah, or it is yeah. well-advised, actually, in Troll 2. Let's okay. move on. All right. Uh, overall, this feels... Uh, feels to me like a form of storytelling that cannot purposely be duplicated, just has to come naturally from a certain sort of mind. Is my observation off? Has it some validity? Am I making sense? Can you think of other examples, good and bad? And what about Scarecrow's brain? Uh, <laughs> keep up the good work and always remember you are loved, Luke. Thank oh, you. Thank you, Luke. And you're loved too, Luke. And everyone who's, who's listening, you're loved too. Just, you're not mm. alone. Um, you are talking about uh, one of the great... Uh, uh, most important things we can talk about in art, which mm. is what is being conveyed and how it is conveyed. Well, it's okay. so obvious that sometimes we forget to discuss it. Um, one thing I always hammer on, I like to bring up, was uh, e- Ebert's Creed. Yeah. Uh, which is, a film is not about what it's about, but how it's about it. Um, that sounds a little bit uh, a little bit skewed, but it actually makes perfect sense. I, uh, I don't entirely agree with it, but I find that's often the case. Where you can try to say something really poignant, but if you say mm. it really badly, it's not going to come across. Uh, and or, if you try to say something trite, but you say it really amazingly, that also is fantastic. Well, but I, I think what I think Ebert is getting at is that there was uh, and still is a, a preoccupation with focusing on a film's uh, plot. Like the the, the nitty gritty of the story and sort of the way the story functions and how the, the you know the characters 
complete that story. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas he's trying to say the film isn't really about that because of how you can tell that same story myriad ways. And the way you tell that story mm. uh, is going to reveal a different, a different theme within the filmmaker's mind, mm. whether it's intentional or not. Yeah. Uh, there's the old credo that there's mm. only, depending on who you talk to, there's only like three stories or five stories or seven stories that can possibly be told. Oh, I hate that. It's so reductive. I it's very that, reductive, but, yeah. but it is, it's when we reduce storytelling to base components like that, mm-hmm. what we are doing isn't saying that stories can only be one thing. We're trying to sort of compress an incredibly complicated, vast mm-hmm. universe of ideas into something that we can discuss easily. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where that's useful. And if you try to just use it to brush aside, Oh, well there's mm-hmm. only seven stories. Then you're missing the point. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I say it's, it's it's obvious, I just mean that like there's so many really important elements to criticism that we sometimes don't focus enough on the fundamentals. And the fundamentals are we're telling a story. There's the plot of the story. Mm-hmm. There's the reason why we're telling the story, which is the themes, and that's what Luke is talking about more than anything. Yeah. Um, and then there is the way that that is explored by the filmmaker. Now, David Mamet's a great example of this, where David Mamet is a filmmaker who I would argue is... If there is an auteur, I would say he's an auteur because you can always pick out his films. Because he has uh, a very specific cadence of dialogue. He has recurring themes throughout a lot of his work. He's, he's, he's not interested a, in duplicity. He's, yeah, he's, he's yeah. not so powerful like a visual storyteller. Like, not especially. Uh, like yeah. you're talking about uh, Christopher Nolan, who is a little bit more – likes to tell his stories visually. Yeah. And he's much more technically minded. Yeah, Mamet, yeah, his his characters and his dialogue, uh, if you watch a bunch in a row, you, you – start to see that he has like maybe five characters but, <laughs> but that's true of any screenwriter any yeah. filmmaker they, they tend to go back to the same types over and over again yeah, and Preston it's just, Sturges uh, use the same supporting yeah, exactly. cast over and over like, again you know, yeah. how, how, many, how many Kevin Smith characters are there? Four how, yeah. many, how many Joss Whedon <laughs> characters are there? One uh, it's <laughs> You're not wrong. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're not wrong. That, that, that's one funny guy, but he's only got the one. <laughs> you're not wrong. I, I, I like how flip and funny he is in a fantasy situation, but he's just got the one guy. Luca, uh, come on, man! Again, uh, again yeah. with this. Yeah, but uh, uh. You're, you're talking about sort of a, a certain kind of director, a certain kind of uh, auteur, putting their stamp on something and how they're exploring different kinds of themes. I've, I feel uh, I disagree with you on the point of interstellar. Where uh, he's, this is about a, a very technically minded director who is indeed trying to tell this story about how the world can be reduced to math and we're f- you know, going out into space and all of these characters are kind of robotic, but it's ultimately love that is the binding principle of the universe. And I think that's a really interesting concept. And if you had given that to, say, Terrence Malick, it would have played really, really well. I feel like Nolan But is... if you give it to Nolan, who is himself kind of a robotic director, it feels... Like it feels like lip service to me. Like he's not really getting the passion that is required to tell that story. Uh, I would argue that Nolan's whole filmography, pretty much, mm-hmm. are stories of emotionally detached working men. Yeah, and in almost every one of those cases, there are people, often uh, friends and uh, love interests, uh, who are trying to pull them into something humane mm. and empathic and they fight it at every turn and sometimes they suffer like in say the prestige mm. or inception and uh in interstellar i feel like nolan was wrestling with there's gotta be some part of me that is sentimental right <laughs> and the best he could do was giving 
his actors are trying. Like Matt, mm. Matthew McConaughey has that great scene where he's watching his kids mm. grow old in like the course of a five minute video. Of course, uh, and Hathaway is like thinking about saving the only person it, she ever loved. It, but, it became kind of a joke at the movie theater where I was working to shout, "Don't go, Murph!" Yeah, but mm. fair enough. But right. The, you're right. Anne Hathaway's speech about how love is math is it reads like a detached filmmaker. Mm trying to figure out what love is. It feels alien. Like, mm. he doesn't understand the premise. He, he's he's writing an essay on something that would uh, be better suited to poetry. No, I grant you, a lot of people connect with it anyway. I think it hits some people more mm. than others for a variety of personal reasons, and uh, maybe you and I are the soulless monsters here, but I do <laughs> think that it just, it, there's a prevalent uh, uh, theme throughout the work. Yeah. Um, but what I appreciate is someone who is Trying to whether or not we agree on what Interstellar is about or whatever, you're you're trying to dig under the surface of the movie. You can appreciate the style, the surface, the sheen, the plot, mm. the action, whatever. But you're actually asking yourself, but what are we getting at? Why are we here? Because if you just wanted to do something nifty, you didn't mm. need to spend this much money. Yeah. So yeah. why are we here? What's the what reason does this movie have to exist? Why, how is this trying to nourish us? Yeah. And there's and one can easily be sort of tricked by uh, like a big spectacle like Interstellar, mm-hmm. uh, because Interstellar is visually gorgeous uh, un- under any circumstances. Absolutely, one hundred percent. That movie is a triumph visually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and when you're getting this sort of sense of of awe and thrill just from the visuals, you can your your heart can sort of trick you into thinking that you're getting kind of a, a bigger message about the bigness of space. I feel that and same it's way. Kind of there. I feel that same way about like really maudlin melodramas as well, mm. where because people are in dire inner personal situations and because they're crying or mm. losing loved ones or saying goodbye to the only person they ever cared about or whatever um we can get so caught up in what is happening mm. that we might not realize that it, what is actually happening is contrived and insincere kind of and they're maybe, kind, of just, kind of empty they're yeah. just kind of hitting you with easy gut punches yeah. rather than weaving a narrative where everything actually makes sense and has a grander meaning other than we will make you cry now the, there waves. Have been, yeah, there have been movies that have waves. Made, did, did waves make you cry? Or, no, or but waves were crying. Yeah. yeah, there are movies that did make me cry. Like actually got me right in the gut, and I and I was kind of mad at them because I knew how sentimental and empty that sentiment was. Oh, give me an example, please. Uh, a monster calls. Oh, screw uh, you! Made, I think made, I like that made, one for real. It, it made me cry at the end, and I was not connecting with that movie at all. Oh, but you no, know, it, was... it, it it played everything right. Uh, same with less so, but uh, the shape of water made me cry at the end. I don't think that's a like a capital G great movie. Mm. I'm I'm kind of glad it won Best Picture, but I didn't think it was the best picture. It wasn't. It like wasn't top, my number one that year, but like I really admire it. And I think it's doing interesting things. I admired it. I think it did some pretty interesting things. It said uh, a lot of really fascinating things about and important things about uh, female sexuality, especially disa- disabled sexuality, yep. which isn't tackled in movies ever. Hardly so, yeah, ever. Um, yeah. uh, that that was really great. And yeah, you know, through this sort of like weird metaphorical monster story, there's a lot of yeah. interesting things going on in that movie. No, I love that movie. I do think yeah. it's really. It's, it's not even my favorite Del Toro, but it's mm. really excellent. I, I think it's his best English language film. I'm, I'm embarrassed by some of the maudlin Hollywood claptrap that got me before, mm. like my taste evolved. Now this might sound <laughs> like I'm being condescending to people who like these movies. Mm. 
Uh, I'm really not trying to be. It's just as I grew up and I learned more about how movies are made, mm-hmm. I realized just how like kind of calculated and formulaic these movies are. And although there's certainly an element of craftsmanship to them, I don't particularly care for them, and I find them less than many other more interesting emotional films. But two films mm-hmm. uh, that made me cry like nobody's business that would probably probably not have that effect on me now mm-hmm. if I watch them again. One was A Beautiful Mind when he's like saying, you know, winning a prize and saying, love gave me all the power. Uh-huh. And I'm just like, oh, I like love. Like that was just me in college <laughs> watching that movie. And the other one was Forrest Gump. Okay. Forrest Gump is full of maudlin claptrap. It's it's this really sentimental, really conservative movie. Oh, yeah. It's like preaching a, a lot yeah. of about following. Yeah, you know, a, a, bl- go blindly into capitalism. Mm. Go to war when mm. we tell you to, and you'll be a hero, and it'll be worth it. And, no, uh, but it, when Forrest Gump, I was in high school when Forrest Gump came out, and one of my teachers brought up a very excellent point about Forrest Gump that a, a lot of the rhetoric about the character who is mentally disadvantaged, yeah. uh, he was described in most reviews as an innocent. Mm. He's an innocent who is sort of stumbling his way through this world. Mm-hmm. And the teacher pointed out he's called innocent because he's also financially successful. Yeah. He kind of bumbled his way into these things and lucked into fortune. Yeah, and he he's was actually famous. Yeah, and he's, he's famous. A, he's a rich. Hero, he, yeah. Yeah, he, he can achieve all of these things he, in the American way. He didn't need any smarts to achieve. Yeah. Uh, if he had that's stu- the American dream right there. If he had stumbled forward and had failed and was you know living on the street and did not was not financially successful, we would have called him a fool. Well, yeah, and I think that was a really interesting observation that I've taken with me ever since high school. It's an excellent point. Mm. Um, the thing that really gets me with Forrest Gump, <laughs> as much or more than that, mm. is that we we see the contrast of Forrest's story, where Forrest. You know, he does everything they to- the 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 mainstream told you to do. Mm-hmm. You go to college, you go to you go into the military, you start a business. Mm-hmm. You, everything that happens there more or less happens right for him. Um, but then you look at Jenny and her story yeah. that runs parallel to him. What does she try to do? Well, first off, she doesn't come from a loving family. She comes from an incredibly abusive, horrifying family. Yeah. Um, she tries to make her way in the world on her own without a support system, uh, tries to go into the arts, tries to get involved uh, in political activism, and the movie kills her for it. Yeah, yeah. And the movie, like, really puts her through the ringer, and I, it, it feels really judgy. The one part in Forrest Gump where if I watched it today, it would make me cry, because mm-hmm. this part works, and it works entirely because of Gary Sinise. Uh-huh. The part where Lieutenant Dan like pulls Forrest off of his bed onto the floor mm-hmm. and says, you should have let me die. Mm-hmm. That speech is phenomenal. <laughs> that is such an interesting, strange speech to give. And you totally believe it coming from Gary Sneeze. He is incredible in that movie. Yeah. He's a great actor in general, but he is incredible in that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the one part of Forrest Gump mm-hmm. I can get behind. Um, Other than technically it's impressive. And yeah. All that I, stuff, I, I, you know. but, Titanic did that for me. Yo, you, like, you, do you resent Titanic? You don't like Titanic? Uh, no, I, I resent Titanic for making me cry. Ah, really? Not, I love well, Titanic so well, much. Well, t- Titanic... It came I didn't out, used to, but I do now. It came out in the late 90s. There was a lot of bitterness about how sort of big and mainstream it was, and I got on that train just because I was the right age and w- wasn't going to get behind something like Titanic. It's like, why is everybody behind Titanic? You should be watching LA Confidential. And... Uh, 
yeah, it was kind of like mad. <laughs> I was mad at James Cameron for a- being able to sort of pull on my heartstrings the time I saw it. And I'm then, so glad you and I grew I've, up. I've come around on Titanic. I yeah. actually think it's like one of the pinnacles of pop filmmaking. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah, it's it's yeah. in terms of just storytelling, pop melodrama. Easily, just, easily recognizable characters, pretty movie stars, it, and the apex of special effects. Like, all of those things came together in Titanic. People turned on Titanic, and not most people, just a small group, mm. because it was a giant blockbuster that wasn't made for macho dudes. It which was, was not yeah. a thing. It was, that's not true. the 90s. That the, was not a thing. The stuff, for, the stuff for women always gets dogpiled on. You know, yeah. Whether it's good or bad, it doesn't matter. If it's a big blockbuster for girls or for women... They're they're pilloried by the male community. And yeah, even if look, even look if just an attempt at, is made. Yeah. Look at Twilight, for instance. Anyway, yeah. we're off topic. We're off topic, but um, but you, Luke, uh, you're, you're bringing up a great point. You're bringing up a great point, and yeah, you're starting to recognize that different filmmakers are trying to say different things to you, and I think that's a, an important step in in watching film. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's worth remembering that you don't have to just accept what a filmmaker is telling you. Yeah, like if they're conveying something with great style, but you find it shallow, it's okay to say you don't like that movie. Mm. Or if they're saying something with not a lot of style, but the message is so clear and sincere and it works, that can also be a great yeah. movie. You don't have to love something just because it's flashy. You don't have to hate something just because it's got. I don't know. Like you just mm. there's a lot of complexity to it, and it all boils down to really simple concepts like content versus style. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, we should move on. Uh, here's a letter from Christopher. Hello, Hi, Christopher. Christopher. Uh, hey there, Whitney and Bibby. I'm sticking with that for now. I can live with it. Um, I just finished listening to your 90th episode. Okay. Oh, so you're going back a little bit, uh, which just ended with a question about VHS, DVDs, and Blu-rays and comparing them to the pros and cons and the like. I agree with most of your po- the points you made, and I often get worried about the state of physical media. I know it's declining. The numbers speak for themselves. But do you think that something uh, Blu-rays – do you think that Blu-rays could reach the popularity of vinyl? In that their look and quality becomes the aesthetic rather than in the affordability. Also, are you annoyed that the three hours direct the three hour director's cut of Midsommar is not getting a Blu-ray release and is instead going exclusively to Apple TV Plus of all places? Till next time, Christopher. Uh, to answer your second question first, yeah, that sucks. Uh, yeah. I do believe that that should be available in multiple uh, ways. Uh, I do believe that streaming services want to have their exclusive content, and I totally get that. And mm-hmm. if I owned a streaming service, I'd want exclusive content too. However, I think that home video can be a great way to supplement that. Um, for example, Netflix every once in a while with their high end stuff mm-hmm. will put out a Blu-ray. Netflix just put out a Blu-ray like a month ago of uh, the Haunting of Hill House. Yeah, there you go. Um, so that's something where even if you don't have Netflix, I've only I've only seen some of that show, but it's so damn good. Mm-hmm. People who don't have Netflix should be able to at least pay to see that. Yeah, yeah. And I feel the same way about the director's cut of Midsommar. I imagine somewhere down the line, they'll probably, that'll probably be on Criterion or something. Um, and maybe we'll get that off Maybe of so. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, here, here's the thing with Blu-rays. Uh, they're already kind of in that, that rarefied realm of vinyl in many cases. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can just go down to, you know, your local Target mm-hmm. and pick up a, a DVD or a Blu-ray that just has the movie on it, maybe has a few features. What we mean is but the DVD and Blu-ray is no longer the standard by which everybody watches movies. Exactly. You have to kind of want to go out of your way to get it. Yeah. You don't have to go too far out of your way because you can still order it easily online and mm. buy it at a lot of stores. But you're not expected to consume the majority of your home media content on physical yeah. media anymore. And as a result, it is on the decline. It's on the yeah, it's on the, the decline. People aren't really buying it. Nobody's renting it. We do because we live a mile from a, a video yeah. rental store, one of the last remaining video rental stores. Mm-hmm. 
but uh, and we have a community that will support it because we're an entertainment based yeah. community. Exactly. And, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, I think Blu-rays are, are already in that vinyl realm, and that uh, they're carefully. A, a few companies are carefully curating their content and offering some uh, rather expensive but really good Tiffany product. Mm-hmm. Like the Criterion Collection, that was the first. They've always been doing it. But now we have stuff like Arrow Video and Vi- the Vinegar Syndrome and Shout Factory. They're actually putting off these, uh, putting out these really, really good editions of specially selected titles. That's the thing that I think is the future of, of mm-hmm. physical media. Not so much um, <coughs> that the type of media itself, like the the overall like. <clears throat> sonic aesthetic of vinyl mm. is something that is really valuable to a lot of collectors and it should be it's really great um blu-rays are still better quality than whatever streaming service you uh, know, typically but, yeah but uh, or at least to the naked eye some people can't tell the difference but yeah. regardless um it's the idea is that they are appealing more to collectors and collectors of niche stuff i think criterion as long as there are still people manufacturing blu-ray players criterion will always be a player because they know their audience they know Mm. how many discs to press they know how many people want their sometimes very esoteric releases they know that their brand has value shout factory um does pretty much the same thing Mm. they're a little expensive but they do load their stuff with special features and mm. they clean everything up real nice same thing with your aero video yeah, uh, vinegar syndrome mm. is becoming carving a nice little niche for itself as uh, a purveyor of weird drag like weird yeah these off to the side cult movies like yeah. microwave massacre and yeah. yeah like these these movies that typically would never get a home video release after vhs they're being discovered by this great dvd mm. video a Blu-ray service called Vinegar Syndrome. Uh, they're unearthing some amazing stuff. They're cleaning it up. Some other stuff is just crap, but you kind of watch the crap. And there's a whole mm. Vinegar Syndrome section at our local video store, Cinephile. It's great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'll just, I'll just, it's, I'll just pick up anything. And half the time, it's an amazing find. The other half is this is horrible. I can't believe it looks this good. <laughs> this should look like shit. Like this is normally the only way you'd see this is on a copy of a copy of a copy on YouTube. Yeah, there, there's a lot of print on demand services. They don't bother to clean up anything. It's like you yeah, want you want to. This is what we got. If you want a physical copy of this, we'll just give you what we have. Mm-hmm. It's going to cost as much as a regular DVD, but there's no like the chapter stops are every ten minutes, no matter what. Yeah, and uh, and there's no frills at all. Yeah, we're not even going to do like a big. Mm-hmm. There, there will be a very token menu screen, I'm, which is basically movie and chapters i'm really kind of surprised that that like warner brothers and universal didn't push that a lot harder their print-on-demand service like it was it was out there you could get the warner archive see they they were using it only for again their esoteric stuff that they weren't giving a major push to Mm. i think what to do now that they're all pushing for their own streaming services is almost everything print on demand like their major titles uh you know you'll still release those you know there'll always be a market for the big stuff mm. but like anything any, any comedies they put out in the 80s like literally anything we got we'll print on demand yeah and might be a little bit of a surcharge but mm. they'll it'll give the collector's market something that they can always rely mm. on it really isn't that hard to print a blu-ray mm. it really isn't well it's pretty straightforward and, Just and, do it. And, and here and here's your streaming model, Warner Brothers and Universal. You have a great back catalog. Have you noticed how all of the other streaming services are being really stingy about forming an archive? Because mm-hmm. they only want to do a few original shows. They want to be their own networks more than they want to be an archive. Mm-hmm. Be an archive. Just put everything Just on there. Just be an archive. Put everything on there day one have mm-hmm. six like six thousand titles on day one and then just keep adding now i know and never th- take them off now i know what you're thinking ah how's everybody gonna find that 
two things. One, you actually like make them searchable. Mm. And not just by title, but put actors' names in there, put, put genres in and there. subgenres. Yeah, actors, directors, yeah. Just if we want to see something from 1967, boom, there we go. Alphabetical order. Real simple. Mm. I don't understand why this is complicated. Also, what you should do, curate them. There's a whole movement on Twitter to get Leonard Malton to introduce classic Disney movies on Disney+. Plus. This is a no-brainer. They, they didn't even ask him, and that's insane. That's a no-brainer. It's no, nobody knows more about Disney animation than Leonard Malton. Yeah, he, lo- he, he, his brain is a store of information. Oh, just animation yeah. in general. He's a genius. And, um, I was saying, fine, he needs to get... Mm. Mm, oh, ooh. No, <laughs> I, think I, can, I think I can avoid it. Ah, chew. Okay. Um... But, uh, yeah, he will put everything in context. He can, like, highlight what's really worth looking at. Criterion does this as well. Well, they'll bring in filmmakers and film critics. When when Filmstruck was doing that, I think Criterion is – the Criterion channel is working their way back up to it. Yeah, yeah. they're they're doing a few things. I think Karen Kusama is, like, introducing Mm. some, like, films by exciting female filmmakers this month. We already had it. It was already on Filmstruck. I know. It sucks. Um, But – and I think Shudder does that as well. Joe Bob Briggs is, of course, curating things all the time. Um, That should be a thing. I think every respectable streaming service should be reaching out to filmmakers, film critics, other people who know what they're talking about, maybe, you know – celebrities who are well-versed in things and they should, or authors and just have them present here are eight movies on the service you should watch right now. And they Mm. can be, if you have this giant archive, there's a ton for them to pick through. They'll find weird stuff. You'll introduce Mm. people to other cool things. Oh, here's an actor I never knew was awesome. Cool. You have 10 other things on the service in the 1950s that they're in. I can watch. It'd be amazing. It'd be amazing. Uh, I'm excited about the possibility of streaming as an archive and they refuse to go there. Yeah. Like, and I think that's why a lot of people were really uh, disappointed in Netflix Mm -hmm. when they decided to go the, we're a TV network route. It's like, I thought you were a video store. No, no, we're a TV network now. Oh, but I wanted you to be a video store. I wanted you to keep adding titles and I wanted you to be the Netflix. I wanted you to be the internet flicks, the the, the archive. That's your name. They're responsible for not just getting everybody to subscribe, but getting new subscribers all the time and new content like brand new content you can't get anywhere else will mm. do that I am not opposed to that that can be fine mm. but if you have access to a giant library of titles just give us all your you don't see mm. that at a, I, mean, I know video stores are dying out but if you have a video store you don't see that at a video store where they just arbitrarily put a thousand titles in the back mm. and say come back in three months we'll put them back out there they'll rent you those movies we mm. have them we should move on. Anyway, uh, here is a letter from Keith. Hi, Keith. Hi, Keith. Uh, hello, Bibbs and Whitney. I've been a fan of y'all for years, and you two have made a huge impact on my life and how I view the world and cinema. Wow, well, thank, thank you. you. That's Thanks a lot. Thank that. you yeah. very much. I'm writing this as I contemplate torturing myself by going to grad school for cinema studies. Oh. Because I've begun to notice that since graduating with a political science degree, I have as much a much more astute view of political ideology that movies present. Hmm. Good to have. Yeah. Uh, for that reason, I despise Ghostbusters, the male one. Okay, the, 19, in, the 1980s one. Okay. And it's ingrained praising of Reaganomics and the decline of unions and the working class which resulted from those policies. That's an That's excellent point. totally in... Uh, Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters is about guys starting a business. It is. It's that's all it is. It is a blue. It is taking something utterly fantastical, mm. hunting ghosts, and making it really blue collar, and making mm. it about entrepreneurship and fighting. Like the ultimate conflict in there. Like everything's going fine. Everything's going mm. fine, and, and then, then the, government regulation yeah, comes the in. EPA and ruins steps their business. in. The guy from the EPA is like this total dickhead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They even gave him a penis name. His name is Peck. Yeah, I love that movie. I actually love Ghostbusters, mm-hmm. but. 
politically, it's not all that great. You're actually right about that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When I when I bring this up to my family, whom agree with me politically, they call me crazy for taking the movie too seriously. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's that's, the same. That's what happens when you challenge people on a movie they already like. <laughs> that's what happens. You, oh, I don't want to rethink it. I already have. I already have ideas. Well, I mean, if you're open, you'll hear it. Yeah. If you're open, yeah, yeah. But a lot of people just like the stuff they like, and they're mm-hmm. not super invested in reanalyzing stuff that's been part of their. You know their taste makeup. Mm, right, I get that. Right. I actually do get that. Mm. But I think it would all behoove us to be more open-minded. Yeah. It, it's the same when I criticize Ready Player One for its fetishization of corporations. Yep. Yes. One hundred percent. Yes. And yes. and ignore what seems to be a complete fascist society. Yeah. And the movie could care less about it because uh, look at the Iron Giant. Isn't that cool? The Iron Giant's killing people. Isn't which, that awesome? Uh, which, which was the final straw. And I said, "Fuck this movie in the theater." I, I think. We, did we see that together? I'm trying to we remember. we didn't, but I think we had similar. Takeaways. Yeah, yeah. I was trying to remember because I remember saying like, "Oh, jeez," because there's this whole plot in Ready Player One about how the bad guys want to take this giant video game everyone's participating in, mm-hmm. and they've just, they've done market research and they realize they can cover the ad, the, the screen eighty percent with ads mm-hmm. before people get frustrated and turn it off, and that's their plan. And then the big climax of the movie is. 100% ads. Just advertising for just all these... Just different advertising mascots mm. punching each other. Yeah, pretty much. I'm like... It couldn't be more obvious if it if it were like, you know, Count Chocula and Ronald McDonald fighting each other. It's so weird that Spielberg didn't lean into that. Like, you'd think he'd have a little bit more to say. Yeah, I, I, he, he made a lot of that stuff. He, he didn't even... He, Spielberg clearly wasn't even thinking about that. He was only doing the tech. Yeah, I think he just only wanted to make yeah. an animated movie. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, moving anyway, on. Um, uh, sorry for my long letter, uh, yeah. but my question is, if yeah. I continue my education, uh, my language and understanding of movies will continue to evolve and grow. Mm-hmm. How do I not sound like a snob in the process? <laughs> uh, also, he says, uh, thanks for y'all, everything y'all do, and a special shout-out to Whitney. Oh, thank you. Uh, oh, for being a proud bi-man, which helps pave the way for me to live my life as, live my fullest life as a bi-man myself. Well, That's well, awesome. Welcome out. Goodness sake. Uh <laughs> Thank you to William, who I fell in love with from the looking recaps on What the Flick. Aww. And I uh, loved every time he made an appearance because he was able to convey his argument so precisely that it made me respect him even more. Wow, when I read you. his review of Moonlight, I dragged my best friend to see it. Uh, see it the Monday it was available. We saw it in a very empty Cinerama Dome at the Arclight Hollywood, and we cried loudly. Oh, that's, that's uh, awesome. Sorry for thank this you. long letter. Keep up the great work, Keith. First um, off, that's very touching, and thank yeah, you for thank that you last so bit. That, that means so much to both of us. Yeah. Um, as for not sounding like a snob, um, on some level, mm-hmm. it's going to be unavoidable. When you learn more about something than the layperson, mm-hmm. just the person who doesn't make it their life, the person who doesn't research it for fun, um, the people who only consume things on a casual level, there's always going to be someone who says you're overthinking it. Mm-hmm. You're experiencing that right now just from like noticing the political underpinnings of pop cinema mm-hmm. where people just typically want to, quote unquote, turn off their brains. Um, Which means fall asleep as far as I can tell. <laughs> and even then your brain's not off. You're dreaming. No, no theoretically. Um, <coughs> but uh, in regards to that sound like a snob, um, I think what you really mean isn't so much sounding like a snob because there's a way to interpret that that's just like really knowing what you're talking about. Mm. Um, it's how to not sound above everybody or condescending, which I do mm. think is something that even good critics can fall into sometimes because we know a lot. We've mm-hmm. watched a lot and it can be frustrating to n- have conversations with people who aren't as well versed in something and mm. we just want to just say no just trust us watch ozu it'll make sense <laughs> like well but yeah. we need to 
be more cognizant and we need mm. to be more able to reach out to people who maybe are only just getting interested in yeah. cinema. And that's that's the trick. Here, here, Here's the secret. Uh, first of all, don't worry about sounding like a snob. Uh, if you have refined taste, embrace that. Um, a long time ago... Uh, Alonzo Duralde, mm. friend, uh, friend of the show, a, mm. a critic friend of ours and mm-hmm. a very good critic. Oh, uh, one of the best. Uh, one of the best. Uh, yeah. Pointed out that the way, how, the way nerd and geek had been taken back from sort of this as a pejorative, yeah. he wants to t- do that with snob. Uh, that a snob is somebody who, uh, yeah, is should be proud of their refined taste and you should be we, we should have o- high standards. Open, That's open a good about thing. having high standards. Yeah. And I think... Yeah, condescending is really difficult, especially when you're really kind of pissed off at the volume of counter opinions mm-hmm. uh, for something that is perhaps what you see as perhaps kind of empty or is perhaps kind of or, empty. Or, or worst is yeah. actually like contributing negatively to the yeah, culture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that uh, can the, be really frustrating. The secret, I think, is is just confidence. If you can, uh, if you can lay your opinion out clearly and succinctly, and you can hold that. In the face of a tidal wave of, of counter opinions, you won't necessarily be seen as a. People will accuse you of being a snob no matter what. You're, you can't avoid but it entirely. There's always someone. You will have a clear opinion that people will be able to more easily hear, presumably. Yeah. Um, yeah, it just sort of saying, like somebody says, oh, I love this film. It has all of these things in it. And if you can just say, I thought it was very empty. Just say that that was an empty film. There's all of these things in it. Here's another film that I think does it more does it better. But what you're I understand what you're saying, but it's not doing what you think it is. Here's here's what has helped me, and I mm-hmm. think once I started adopting this mentality, I think I became a better film critic and person. Mm. Uh once you have a certain amount of information, a certain amount of expertise in something, um mm. don't fall into the trap of thinking that you know more than people. Mm. You don't. You might know more than one subject, but Mm. that doesn't mean you know more than them. Uh, Focus on sharing it. Yeah. Don't worry about, like, don't keep it to yourself. Don't say you know better. Just say, oh, you haven't seen this? Don't say, oh, that's a shame. Say, no, it's amazing. You want to watch it right now? (laughs) I have it on Blu-ray. Let's come over to my house. Share. Turn things into teachable moments. Like, oh, you don't know what this terminology means? Let me tell you, it's actually really cool. Like, it's it's cool that there's a word for diegetic. (laughs) That's a word. That's Mm. such a cool word when you learn that. If you don't know that word. Uh, Diegetic refers to... Diegesis, yeah. Refers to when you're watching a movie, there's a sense, <laughs> there's a sense of actual reality, things that are happening within the narrative. People mm-hmm. are talking to each other. That's real. But then there's things the characters aren't interacting with that are done for the benefit of the audience. Now, and usually when we say something non-diegetic, we're referring to the soundtrack. Mm. The characters in the film might be able to hear a song if it's playing on the radio, if someone's performing it in front of them, but they're typically not hearing the orchestral score. Right. That is a non-diegetic score. Mm. But if they're going to a performance, like you were watching, watching Pitch Perfect and people are singing, that is a diegetic score. Yeah. That's neat. That's I love neat. that there are words for that. That's cool. Um, Whip that one out sometimes. It's fun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you're going to use these terms and people are going to roll their eyes, but you need – you can sort of – if you find a succinct way of explaining that to somebody, what it is and why it's important why it excites you, mm-hmm. then they're going to get on your side a lot faster. Yeah, I'm firmly believing in um, – you know, gatekeeping is is bad. You know, we mm. shouldn't say, hey, this is my gate. Get away from that gate. I think – I really want to change it so that gatekeeping becomes, hey, look at this gate. 
This oh. gate's got all this really cool stuff behind it. Let me guide you. Look at all this cool stuff. That would be awesome. There just needs to be more of that. Look at this cool, awesome stuff. Like, um, a lot of appreciation for Cynthia Rothrock has been on Twitter lately. Oh. People have been sharing clips of Cynthia because, Rothrock kicking because ass. Just because they discovered who she was. And, a lot of, yeah. She hasn't made movies in a long time. And there's a lot of people yeah. who just sort of are young and would totally love Cynthia Rothrock. If you're yeah. not familiar with her, She's she one, was a martial arts... stunt performers of the 80s. And yeah. One of the best fighters. She was, a, she was an action superstar, especially in China. Um, in the 80s and mostly the early 90s. And her movies were never huge hits in America, but she was always a master mm-hmm. of choreography. She's a master martial artist. Even if the and, movies were bad, she was always great. Yeah, and... she was amazing. And, yeah, some people have been just sharing clips of her stuff in awesome movies, like, yes, madam. And people are like, holy shit, she's amazing. I'm like, yeah, check out these movies. And people are like, oh, I will. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's the good stuff. You just want to be passionate about it and enthusiastic and happy and want to share what you have learned. That's how you avoid being acting and sounding like a snob. Mm. It's being inviting. I yeah, think is yeah, the thing. And, yeah. uh, but people have to come to the gates for you to welcome them through. They that's, do, that's but that's you can go. also say, look at this gate. Mm-hmm. Look at this cool gate. Look at Cynthia Rothrock fighting. You want more? <laughs> we got so much more. She made so many movies. <laughs> uh, here's a letter from Nolan. Hi, Nolan. Hi, Nolan. Uh, Dear Bibbs and Whitney, uh, with the holidays fast approaching, many of us have big meals with friends and family to look forward to. With this in mind, I thought it would be fun to ask if there are any films you can recall that contain scenes with particularly well-shot food. Ah, yes. Uh, We've we've been asked this before. Yeah, Um, it's a good question, I think food is one of those things that we don't tend to notice much in films, but every now and then something just really sticks out, for better or for worse. I'll give a brief example. One of the most appetizing foods I've ever seen in a, on film was the strudel that Hans Landa orders for Shoshana in Inglorious Basterds. Uh, <laughs> Inglorious Basterds, excuse yeah. me. Uh, from the way uh, the crust flakes to that perfect dollop of cream, the scene never fails to make me hungry. I saw the film for the first time in the theater with a friend who audibly gasped when Landa puts out, puts out his cigarette in the strudel at the end of the scene. <laughs> no! It's like killing a dog in a horror movie. Don't do that! Yeah. Uh, as tense and powerful as that scene was, my mind always goes back to the strudel. <laughs> I know it's not an aspect of movies that we th- think about very often, if at all, but I would love to hear ex- examples of excellent presentations of food that you can recall in films. It doesn't have to be good-looking food. I still don't like watching Hook because of the dare scene right? where the Lost Boys gorge themselves on neon-colored cake frosting. It's just frosting! Yeah, thanks uh, for all the entertainment, Nolan. Um, that's actually a great question. Mm-hmm. Uh, movies typically exist in only two senses, sight and sound. It's mm-hmm. the reason there's a whole magazine called Sight and Sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are other senses that uh, some films make a point to evoke. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some films which evoke a... Oftentimes in a movie, you'll see people just walking through a sewer and mm-hmm. it doesn't occur to you how much it stinks. Some movies go out of their way to try to convey that and make yeah. you just understand how wretched it's supposed to be. There used to be a thing called Smell-O-Vision where people <laughs> scratch and sniff cards in the movies. It did not take off. Um, um, but- o- o- Odorama is the one that... that- is the ah, only notable example. That was my. That was what I mean. Yeah, um, o- o- which was from John Waters Polyester. Um, but taste is a really, really good one because there's a really good chance someone in your audience is hungry, and we know what that food tastes good. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of really good food movies and TV shows out there. I don't mean. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even mean like uh, cooking shows. I mean something like uh, the anime series Food Wars, mm-hmm. which a lot of people have noted. I'm a big fan of. Uh, they. Do things like talk about taste profiles and the mm. way that like and umami you, and the, you can the, use the perfect soy, combination of flavors and you like, can use soy sauce in certain desserts to really <coughs> make the sugar spike and mm. like contrast to the saltiness and you're watching it and like oh that sounds good I want to do that 
They did one that was just like, here's what you do. You mince up a whole bunch of onions, and then you just like rub them into a steak, and it can mm. make a cheap steak taste like an amazing steak. Nice. By like just the juice. Ah, oh, it's so good. I need to try it. <laughs> um, but when it comes to movies, mm. there are two examples that I come back to over and over again when I think about mm. the most delicious things I've ever mm. seen in a movie. Yeah. First one, it's a cliche, but it's true. Mm-hmm. Big Night. Big Night. Big Night is like often cited as the best food movie. It came, out, came out in the late 90s. It has uh, Tony Shalhoub and Stanley Tucci. They own a restaurant. They put on a big dinner. Most of the movie is devoted to that dinner. Yeah. The whole thing is the restaurant is failing. Mm-hmm. They have a very famous uh, Louis Prima. Uh, the great Louis Prima is going to mm-hmm. visit their restaurant. And if he likes it, maybe they can save the restaurant. So they're putting on a big dinner for Louis Prima. Will Louis Prima show up? That's the whole movie. Uh, and it's great. It's intimate. It's fun. And the food mm. looks amazing. But I think the best looking food I've ever seen in a movie mm-hmm. is the watermelon from the Joy Luck Club. I, I still haven't seen the Joy Luck Club. There's a yeah. scene in the Joy Luck Club where it's a flashback to one of the mm. older women. And uh, it's about like her sexual awakening. And she's mm. seeing the most handsome man in the universe. Mm. Like... He's got, like, a watermelon that's, like, carved open, mm-hmm. and he's not cutting it. He's just reaching in with his fingers and pulling out chunks of watermelon flesh and just eating it as the juices <laughs> are coming over. And I'm watching this, and I'm just like, oh, mm-hmm. my God. I know I should be turned on, but actually that just looks like a great way to eat watermelon. <laughs> like, But also I'm turned on, and I'm not even really mm-hmm. – I, I don't – I'm – Technically, I'm heterosexual, but, like, I'm also just like, yeah, okay, cool, let's do this. Like, it's so tactile, and you can feel it, and you can smell it, and it, you can feel it over your mouth. It's right. so good. Um, the other example, another good example that's always cited is uh, Juzo Itami's Tampopo. Yep. Uh, that is a film that is very specifically about food. It's kind of an anthology film, although there is a central story they keep going back to about uh, a young chef and a wandering cowboy who, <laughs> who decides to open up a ramen joint. And ramen is like fast food. It's like nothing food. You just sort of get it because you need to fill. It's like Subway. It's like eat a tube of food. Subway. It'll do. Uh, and, uh, yeah, they're, they're trying to find just sort of the perfect flavor profile on making the perfect ramen and also setting up the perfect restaurant and remembering all of the orders and who has talents for all of these different things and getting the perfect ingredients. Right. Perfect. And, yeah, and all, yet there's all these asides on how to properly eat noodles. There's a funny bit about, like, eating food properly and trying to be as quiet as possible. And meanwhile, across the restaurant, there's somebody eating food as loudly as possible. Yeah. And his noise infects the, the <laughs> etiquette class. Um <laughs> Again, it's it's all in all of these wonderful close-ups on all these wonderful foods. There is a scene where a young couple has sex with food, including like a live shrimp, which is a little bit bizarre. That's weird. Um, in America, you know, there's That's it's, just it's, generally kind of weird. It's a Japanese film, so it does focus on Japanese cuisine, which is different. It's well, a, a I, lot, a lot I eat shrimp. I eat shrimp a lot yeah. too. I, I don't know if I'd invite there's, one into the bedroom. Yeah, there's still a lot more seafood in Japan because it's an island, for goodness sake. And, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's a fishing-centric culture in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. You notice in the Ring, uh, the Japanese version Ringu, which I still think is better than the American one. Mm-hmm. Um, the a lot of the iconography is aquatic. Because the town that the spectral little girl was from was a fishing village. And in America, for the American version, mm. they changed the iconography to pastoral. So it's more about horses mm. because which, it which takes to- place in middle America. And totally fits. That, no, that's a really yeah. good adaptation, I argue. I, mm. I, I still prefer the original, but they changed the things 
that needed to be changed to really hit Americans mm. where they live. And I yeah. still kept all the weirdness. It's great. Also, I think horses are way creepier than any kind of sea life. Yeah. Well, maybe not so. There's some angler fish. fish. Yeah, angler fish are pretty freaky. Can you imagine an angler, like angler fish on four legs just walking mm. across the plains? Giant mm. angler fish the size of horses? I, I can, and I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight. Isn't that yeah, fucking yeah. creepy? Can you imagine the that? Gi- gigantic shrimp just roaming the prairie. Anyway, if you're telling stories and if you're making movies, mm. going after you know universal sensations, the sensations that a lot of people share, mm. like food. You know, We all have to eat something to survive. Uh, it can be a really good way to engage the audience on a purely instinctive level. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you build a whole narrative around that, it can really work. There's, there's a reason we keep coming back to food movies. People ask about food movies. I love eating food. <laughs> Food's neat. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm more interested in the aesthetics of food than actually eating it. Eat, eating it is a chore, but looking at food is amazing. Eating is a chore? Yeah. It's, I, I have weird neuroses about food. But, I, I uh, happen to know this, but yeah. I'm still, I'm still <laughs> baffled. I like food. I like it a lot. I know. We should move on. Okay. Let's read another letter. But yeah, um, one last example before we move on. Please. I I do like um, in uh, Steven Soderbergh's Ocean's Eleven. Mm -hmm. People have noticed that Brad Pitt likes to eat on camera. Yeah. I'm not sure if he's actually like getting his meals in that way or (laughs) if he actually has the spit bucket. But uh, in Ocean's Eleven, they kind of roll with that. And at the beginning of every scene, Rusty, his character, is eating something while he's having a conversation with Danny Ocean. Mm -hmm. And the food is – it's like in one, it's just like a little ice cream. In one, it's a fruit cup. And at the very – it's just a sort of like bizarre little running gag where he's always eating something. Yeah. And at the very end, it's so subtle you might not even notice. Just he's eating and that's sort of a casual part of his character. And there's a bunch of other characters that you might be distracted. Yeah, it's 11. But uh, at the very end, he's outside of a prison waiting for Danny to get out. And there's no spoilers in Ocean's Eleven. It's a puffball movie. But uh, he's eating like a giant burger in that last scene. And he's kind of ramming it into his face and it's like, okay, another scene of rusty eating. And the movie stops and he just sort of has like a little bit of like a heartburn burp. He just goes, oh, <laughs> It's the only time in the movie that happens, and you re- and it's hilarious. You've been paying attention to Rusty. It's like, oh god, he's eating a little too much. <laughs> he finally crossed the line. Like, oh, oh gosh, great, great little food moment. All right, let's move on. All right, here uh, here's a letter from Anna. Hi, Anna. Hello, Anna. Uh, hi, Bibbs and Whitney. I extremely appreciate how much and how openly you talk about mental health. Oh. Uh, but there is one very important thing that I want to correct you on. Oh, please. Thank you. Uh, when you were talking about autism, that is Asperger's Autistic Spectrum Disorder, mm-hmm. I'll refer to it by that name as it is the current standard, as part of mental health discourse, you're making a dangerous mistake. Okay. Uh, high-functioning autists, if they have proper support around them, mostly understanding people at work and outside of it, may not have any mental health disorders. Uh, ASD does not need a cure per se, but it is often going hand in hand with anxiety and depression because a society is highly neurotypical and doesn't know what to do with neurodiverse or neurodivergent people. I am autistic myself, and I also have a chronic mild depression, partially because I was diagnosed with ASD when I was 29. And anxiety, mostly because for 29 years, I didn't know what was wrong with me and couldn't explain to people what kind of support I needed. Okay. Uh, I am treating these two, but I am no way treating my autism. I am just learning to live with it. Think about it as being colorblind. You cannot treat it, just adapt, educate, and make sure that the environment and society are inclusive. I hope to eventually get my depression and anxiety to a minimum. Years of antidepressants and therapy are showing me really good progress. But I don't want, I don't want to stop being 
autistic. That is just who I am and how I view the world. Yeah. Uh, thank you, your artistic patron, Anna. Anna, thank mm. you so much for that email. I mean, yeah. that that's... Thank we, you. We, we, we're trying yeah. to be better all the time. Yeah. We, so, all have, we all have places to grow. Uh, yeah, m- mental health, the phrase mental health or and mental illness, um, I think has expanded to include too much and is now, mm, like arguably. you said, arguably is, is included – the whole conversation I think is haphazardly in, including uh, both autism and depression, things that people just sort of have every day, things that are temporary and yeah, things and things that are actually – Neuroatypical. And well, yeah, atypical is the great word yeah. for it because a lot of our conception of what mental health is mm. and or should be is based on the possibility that there is a baseline normal. Mm. And there kind of isn't, um, at least not in the traditional conventional sense. Um, so we're all learning more and more about people with different experiences and for many, 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 many years. In fact, I'd say the majority of human history. I mean, the the psychology as we know it has only existed for about a hundred years, um, and, and it's and it's changed a lot in that. Oh my god! So, Thank, yeah. The last fifty years has been so much better than the first fifty years. Mm. The first fifty years sucked. Mm. Like there were good ideas, but there was some bad shit happening. Like it was not. There was we had a lot to learn and a lot to grow. We're still doing it. Mm. Um, A lot of the reason why we don't know how to discuss these things so well is because there was such a stigma against all of it. Mm -hmm. Whether it was actual mental health issue or uh, atypical uh, uh, brain function. Yeah, neurotypical. Thank you. Uh, A a word I'm I'm just learning now, actually. Um, We are... This is one of the reasons why I try to be as upfront as possible about my mental health issues and how bad it can be is because... My whole life, people didn't talk about that. And it left me feeling really isolated and alone and feeling like I'm the only one who has a problem. And the older I got and the more I talked to people, the more I realized that we all need to do our part to discuss these things, you know, you know whenever it's appropriate, whenever, mm. which is a lot of the time. It's perfectly reasonable. Um, and make people feel comfortable having these conversations and part of that is being able to correct each other getting the terminology correct thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you for that i will be way 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 more alert we're we're, we're trying to be trying to be sensitive about it thank you for the correction yeah that's great we we have i think have fallen into that trap and i think a lot of people are there's there's evolving terminologies too there's evolving terminologies and there's a oh there's correct terminology. There's actual, like, you know, psychology terms, mm-hmm. and then there's this kind of version, this pop version of psychology yeah. that I think skews the conversation. Sometimes in the right direction because it's increasing visibil- visibility at the very least, mm-hmm. but sometimes completely in the wrong direction because it really un- misunderstands a lot. Yeah, like a trigger. Mm-hmm. A lot of people think yeah. trigger is just when you're upset about something. Mm. That's not what that means. That's an actual psychological term, and it revolves all of a sudden reliving yeah. trauma because it has come up again and activating mm. some really horrible things in your brain. And, yeah, that that phrase has become something that people use to bully, which is the opposite of why it was invented. Mm. Um the- I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to. There's a whole long, long conversation here. Neither of us are qualified to have that whole conversation. Mm-hmm. I, I think I speak for both Whitney and myself when I say that uh, we always want to use the right terminology, and mm-hmm. if we don't, 
please correct us. We're trying, yeah, and yeah. if we screw up, if we use something that's outdated or uh, just flat out inaccurate, like mm. we are here, um, we want to know so that we can be better. Yeah, yeah. please, please, and we um, apologize in advance every mm. time we screw up. We're not trying yeah, to, they're, they're, but we probably can't avoid it. It's mm. something's going to happen yeah, someday. And we're going to say something wrong, and we're going to be talking about uh, talking about mental health a lot. In fact, this next letter is about that. Oh, okay, um, here's a letter from Cecil. Hi, Cecil. Hi, Cecil. Uh, Cecil, excuse me. I think I've been corrected on that before. Hi, Cecil. Uh, Cecil. Um, dear Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool. <laughs> I'm glad that's taking and, off. And 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 Cecil has spelled it R O C and Meister with a Y. Nice. Rockmeister McCool. I like it. Um, autism in movies sucks. Uh, it's normally seen as a sacrifice for this awesome superpower you get. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the Predator. Um, yeah, the Predator is I, uh, a real bad offender in yeah, that. I, I personally would love to be to be able to do math problems in my head like, and lack, calculate pi to a million digits, but that's not how it works. The best depiction of autism in movies is Mary and Max. It's an animated film from uh, about a decade ago. Oh, I didn't see that one. Okay. Uh, because uh, it's realistic and it doesn't mistake it with Savant Syndrome. <laughs> in all caps, that's not how it works. Yeah. Savant Syndrome is when someone with serious mental health issues is a genius in a specific area. But the only time movies and TV shows depict autism is when it's part of Savant Syndrome, and they don't say that it's Savant Syndrome, they just say that that's autism. That's yeah. what autism is. Uh, plus, they don't even do Savant Syndrome correctly, it's just fucking superpowers. Yeah. Cecil. That's his letter. Um, uh, uh, Cecil. 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 Sorry Cecil. about that, Cecil. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> again, we have just... Acknowledge that we are not an expert mm. uh, on this subject at all, but I can say with certainty that when it comes to depicting just about anything, mm. Hollywood will take the laziest way out all the time. Every single time. Especially if it is not considered mm. the social mainstream norm. Um, I just saw like someone arguing mm. like in favor of, like, oh, why do people, like... Why should we give all of these writing opportunities to people who actually have experience in something? It doesn't prevent people who don't know about stuff from writing great movies like Rain Man. Mm. And I'm like, dude, Rain Man is not the example you should be using. <laughs> well, uh, okay. Yes. A white dude can be open and empathetic enough to write a story that stars a black woman. That's true. Yeah. But technically, if, technically it's true. Yeah. The number of black women who get to write that story is so little uh -huh. that maybe we should listen to them instead when it comes to stories about black women. You have and a... not give every opportunity for the white man to write those stories. You have you have every reason uh -huh. to hire people who actually have these experiences and, mm -hmm. and know what they're talking about. And when those people don't get to write that shit, mm -hmm. it's fucking ridiculous that we have to people are making excuses for people who don't know what they're talking about to go on a research expedition to learn shit that other people just know just hire in inclusively <laughs> hire people from all walks of life to write stories about all walks of life it's really simple yeah yeah it would really help everything <laughs> so much please god please please <laughs> please hire more diversely please get nah. more diverse storytellers please 
It's so much better. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we have we have time for a few more. Yeah. yeah we have time for one or two more. Yeah. All right. Uh, here's a letter from Eric. Hi, Eric. Hi, Eric. Uh, dear Bibbs and Whitney. Oh, by the way, I, I I go by whatever you sign off as. Yeah. I don't read your name out of the subject line. If there's no name at the end of the letter, I'm just going to say name redacted. Mm-hmm. So if you're writing in, that's yeah. the way that works. Uh, dear Bibbs and Whitney, hello from Toronto, Canada. Hello, hello Toronto. Hello, Canada. Uh, first time writer, long time listener here. I just wanted to start by saying how excited I am for the launch of the critically acclaimed network. We just launched it. Yay! Hey, welcome aboard. Uh, you're among my favorite podcasters, and I wish you the very best with this new chapter. Now onto my question. Mm. I'm currently in third year at the University of Toronto and majoring in cinema studies. Uh, rather than ask a question, I wanted to gain your opinion on a class I took last year mm. that I thought was very interesting in terms of teaching film studies. The class is called Cinema in the Digital Age, mm. and it focuses on the philosophy of analog cinema versus digital cinema, and how cinema has changed drastically in terms of digital use inside the frame and out. In the class, we studied films through the lenses of philosophers such as D.N. Rodowick and Stephen Shaviro. I'm not familiar with them. I'm actually not. Uh, who, if you're not familiar with, bring, a t- uh, bring up terms such as antology and the phenomenology of cinema, as well as the broader terms of cinema within our historical era. Ooh, it's ontological cinema. What an Ooh. interesting class. Um, within this course, we are required to view at le- a list of films and then apply this learning to, the- to them. And this is uh, what I thought you might find interesting. The required mm. films for the class in this order are mm. uh, The Matrix by okay. Wachowski's Starship, uh, Bicycle Thieves, The Tree of Life, Memento, uh, Olivier Assayas Boarding Gate, which I haven't seen, I don't know what I Southland Tales, <laughs> uh, Gamer. Oh, I and, think Gamer's underrated. And, and yeah. Cosmopolis. Um, okay. That's are, an interesting group uh, of films. I, yeah, like, yeah, I yeah. like most, if not all of those. Yeah, that would be a good, good marathon. Yeah, I haven't uh, seen the Assayas film, but that's a, that's a good crop. I haven't seen Gamer either. Oh, but, Gamer's uh, interesting. Yeah, I, I was I was kind of scared off because it well it looked dumb, but it's, it's, uh, it's kind of gross and there's a few uh, portrayals that I find but you know in, insulting in, for no reason. But in, it, in a film studies context, it might be no. A it's a film studies context yeah. is really fascinating. Uh, I remember being really excited to take this course, but then having a sense of confusion after reading the films on the required viewing list. After finishing the class, I understand why we watched these films, but still found them an odd bunch. I know this is a little long and might be not be too not too interesting, but I really do appreciate the insight uh, you two bring to the discussion of film and cinema as a whole. And thought this might be an interesting discussion. Uh, P.S. I passed the course with an A minus. Good for you. And, uh, good good work. That's great. Uh, and this semester, I'm taking a course entirely on David Cronenberg and Denis Villeneuve. Canadian, oh, two, two Canadian auteurs teaching Denis uh, Villeneuve yeah. already. Uh, I love you both. Look forward to hearing from you on the show, Eric. Um, okay, so again, we haven't mm. read the philosophers that you read in that class, mm. so we can't. Speak to that too directly. I can't speak to that reading list. That's a great reading list mm. for cinema. Um, a lot of those movies are about very specifically the way that we are interacting with uh, digital media and digital information, mm. uh, either in a fantastical way or in the case of something like Cosmopolis, <laughs> the way that the constant mm. stream of information is affecting uh, the mm. way business works, the way we interact, well, the way and, we and define ourselves. And because it's Cronenberg, it's affecting our bodies, which I'm surprised you went with Cosmopolis and not Videodrome, mm. which is actually about those same things, just more directly. I think, uh, yeah. Because, you know, yeah. the, the way you consume media affects your your brainwaves and your sanity. Mm. That's what Videodrome is all about. I mean, if you're specifically talking about digital, Videodrome is mm. analog. You know, maybe mm. they were going for more contemporary but interesting conversations being had regardless mm-hmm. um we are struggling as a society to keep up with the rapid advancement of digital technology mm. um and i don't mean that in terms of like adapting to having smartphones that can answer all oh, that's fine 
we're we're like struggling to like our this is like the first generation of people who have had access to this much uh information and it's affecting the way we tell stories. One of the things I've talked well, about all the time is the way that like screenwriters mm. try to write cell phones out of their movies so they can keep telling the same mm. old stories over and over again. And I'm more intrigued, not that that doesn't work, but I'm more intrigued with people who are trying to use the technology that is changing our lives in every conceivable way mm. to tell different stories yeah. that well, couldn't have been told before. And, and those are some of the stories yeah, you're but, talking about. Gamer could not exist 20 years ago. Yeah, but if, if you're talking about, like, ontology, if you're going, like, really deep down the philosophical rabbit hole, like, what is yeah. the nature of our being? Um, the way digital technology and, by extension, digital film have sort of been affecting that is this notion that there's there's kind of a real you in the physical world, but there's also a digital imprint of you now an in the in an avatar in the digital yeah. world. And uh, I feel like you know virtual reality started to open that conversation mm. way back in the eighties, maybe maybe even before, where there's this sort of electric dimension. That's, that's even what movies like The Lawnmower Man are about. And that's Tron, something. yeah, Tron, for instance. Um, but yeah, I think that. Now that we're actually living in that world, we have to contend with the fact that there are that that the nature of our existence is now twofold. Mm-hmm. That the and especially with social media, the version of ourselves on social media is different than the version of ourselves in life. Sometimes deliberately so, yeah. Sometimes accidentally so. And films like uh, The Matrix about how we present in a fake world and how we present in the real world deals with that very directly. Well, also the idea uh, that the, how we present in the fake world mm-hmm. can. Uh, actually be a more accurate representation of ourselves. For example, um, the, I, I was just reading about this and I didn't know this before, the character of Switch in the original uh, Matrix was supposed to be uh, one gender in the quote-unquote real world and another gender in the Matrix. That's yeah. the name. And I think the studio bolted that and so they had to make the character androgynous. That was like the closest they could yeah. get to making this incredible yeah. metaphor for being trans. Mm-hmm. You know, something they could get past the studio heads. Yeah, yeah. Um, we we see a lot of that. And a lot of those things that we're talking about are about the way that we interact and the way that we... Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, pres- There's actually, the, way, the way we present. A movie I finally caught up with came out a couple of years ago and I finally watched it in its entirety or almost mm-hmm. its entirety um, the other day. Uh, that I actually thought handled this in an interesting fashion was, of all things, Ralph Breaks the Internet. <laughs> okay. Did you see Ralph Breaks the Internet? I did. Yeah. The we that uh, uh, first off, they <laughs> present the interior of the digital internet mm. through actual physical representation of human yeah. avatars and computer programs. They, and, they, it looks like buildings and subways and things you can ride on. It yeah. Isn't you know it's slightly different from Tron, but basically it's Tron. Um, but so what they talked about in that movie, and I thought it was really interesting, was the way that people start using the internet to create a sense of self-worth that we put so much of ourselves into the media realm, be it on social media or artwork or our entrepreneurial endeavors Mm -hmm. uh, that we open ourselves up, not just to share what we've got, but also to absorb what everyone else dishes out at us, and that can be positive and negative. Yeah, and I actually, it, it's hand-fisted in a lot of ways, but I appreciated well, the, how they were yeah. trying to make a film about the emotional connection that we have 
to ourselves mm, to the, through to, the internet. To this other self we've created. I, um, I appreciated that. I thought that was pretty yeah, smartly um, done. Uh, Roger Ebert, uh, near the end of his life, was really fascinated with technology. He re- staunchly refused to get on Twitter. He thought it was dumb. Yeah. And then he decided, well, he, he started to see it as a writing challenge. Yeah. Can he write an essay in 140 characters? And it turns out he was actually – became very enamored of the, the process. Yeah. Um, but he was uh, – Roger Ebert kept on bringing up that when you're looking at a phone in a theater, you're pulling yourself sort of – like when if you're seeing a really good movie, you sort of are so engrossed that you essentially vanish. Yeah, it's immersive. In the, in this, yeah. yeah, this kind of – this. I hate the word immersive, but yeah, that's what he's talking about. It's a perfectly about. good word. It's, it's just overused. It's fine. I just – yeah, I try to steer away from it myself. Uh, and when you're using a technology, when you're kind of creating this other self, that you're essentially projecting your consciousness into a machine. So the idea of a consciousness being imprinted digitally, essentially putting your soul in a computer, in you know, in films like even in bad films like The Lawnmower Man or Transcendence is another one mm-hmm. of those mapping somebody's brain and putting it in a computer. Uh, those were really fascinating stories to him because he thinks that's what the future is. Mm. That we're going to eventually put our brainwaves into a computer and live forever digitally. Well, we're modeling um, computers now, after our brains. Yeah. You know, binary is the same as a neuron firing or not firing, you know? So mm. really, we're just trying to recreate what we've already got yeah. anyway and then pushing all as many of us into it as possible. Yeah, and, and what will that look like from the inside? Nobody knows yet. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like a fascinating yeah, this, class. I'd love the, to take yeah, this, that class. This, other films on this list are a little bit like Bicycle Thieves is very much about ontology, about presenting, because mm-hmm. uh, the, the father has to look a certain way to his son in that movie. That's a good point. And like, it's about how uh, missing one piece of technology, in this case a bicycle, uh, makes all of those things break down and his identity changes. I love the inclusion um, of that because it creates mm-hmm. a sense of all of what we're talking about now about this film, the digital space, has analog roots. Yeah. That there is this is all part of an old tradition mm. of social intercourse and again mm. business and everything. Yeah, yeah that's I, a great. I, that's a great inclusion. Yeah, I, I love the Tree of Life. That's completely about ontology, about sort of the nature of our existence and mm. where, where, where where it falls in, in memory in, 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 and, yeah. and the, the great sort of subconscious of God. And there's a lot going on in that movie. Yeah. Um, Memento, memory, sure. Uh, well, it's all about perception. It's all about yeah. how that can be manipulated by people who. Yeah, yeah it, it, I, uh, I think I think it works. Uh, I don't want to give too much away. I, about I haven't Memento, seen Boarding but, Gate. I haven't seen Gamer. I know Gamer is very much the same as the Matrix. It's about sort of creating that digital avatar. It's, it's about no. It's but it's not though. G- or it's Gamer, about controlling somebody else. Gamer right? is about turning the real world into a world of avatars, mm. where there are people uh, who. Uh, there are two main video games in the world of gamer. Mm. Uh, one of which is basically a Call of Duty kill game. Mm. But the difference is the players are actually uh, death row inmates. And mm. they're played by teenagers. Who, so teenagers are killing real people. Yeah, they're controlling their bodies and everything. And yeah, and the whole thing is that if a gamer, if one of the avatars can survive, I think it's like 25 or 30 matches, mm. they get to go free. So if your gamer is good enough... Are they controlled by the same gamer each time? Yes. Okay. So eventually, Gerard Butler, who is the convicted felon who Mm. is working with this teenager uh, who happens to be a really good gamer, that's why he keeps surviving, uh, Gerard Butler ends up being able to communicate with the person controlling him. Okay, and so it's actually really interesting. Work, work together. This sort of oh, that's really interesting. But at the same time, Dora uh-huh. uh, Butler's wife—I think she's still his wife. Trying to be divorced, but uh, his wife, who has been completely destroyed, but it turns out he was framed. It's a whole plot. But oh, wow, yeah. um, but uh, her job is working on a real life version of The Sims, where oh. people exist within a actual geographic space. 
and they are controlled by people who are living out second lives through them. Oh wow! And she is being her her, her person who is controlling her avatar is paid mm. to do this. Is and this part pisses me off because I think it's a lazy cliche, mm. but is like a really gross guy living in a basement eating like giant piles of waffles and mm. wanting to do really prurient things. Yeah, mm. it, it's 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 I get what you're getting at, and mm. I realize that you're working in really broad terms. It, it's Neville. It, it's, it's Neville. Too, Dean, it's Neville a little Dean Taylor made that movie, th- so they're they're not subtle. They're at not all, subtle. Really. That one. That one. There's a couple of things in the movie I think you just go too far and end up being hmm. offensive. But the basic concept of could we just control other people for our entertainment? Hmm. What if the Sims that we created were real? I mean, this is something we'll see in something like Blade Runner, where hmm. we create these tools. Just to mine things, uh-huh. that's it. This, this is dangerous work. Anyway. We'll create a tool. Well, but wouldn't it be can, better if it thought for get... itself and could solve its own problems? Great. Do we have any responsibility for those things? Oh, no, 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 no. And then the, the robots yeah. rebel, because of course they would. And it's the same, just... similar thing. But what if people started that way and mm. then were controlled, but they were paid to do it? It was voluntary. Yeah. Gamer asks a lot of interesting questions, mm-hmm. and it also works as a pretty cool action movie. It's it's yeah. one of the closer films we've had to like early Verhoeven sci fi films <laughs> in like the last decade. Yeah. I'd love to see Verhoeven yeah. do like a VR film because oh, because cool. he'd really really tear it apart. He hasn't done like a like a proper sci fi action movie in a long well, time. Well, I mean, he did L, and that's his best movie. But uh, but yeah, but no, but he also did Black Book and everything mm-hmm. like that. But it's been he hasn't like been captivated by the studio system since Hollow, Hollow Man. Yeah. Kind which of, is kind an underrated film, I feel. Mm. It's not great, but... I would, uh, Spielberg did Ready Player One. Verhoeven needed to do Ready Player oh One. Oh my god, Verhoeven. Uh, Can you imagine? Just, just, you know what? Just do it again. Can you imagine? You know what he would have done? Hmm. He would have changed the text and made it work. Yeah, yeah. He would have been like... Just like he did with Starship Troopers. Hmm. If An unironic Starship Troopers... Is, I can't is, imagine. It's just propaganda. It's just propaganda. It would have been insufferable and probably yeah, would have done the world a disservice and yeah, it probably would have made a lot of money. Verhoeven dressed his characters as Nazis. He cast like these yeah. really kind of deliberately, superficially pretty actors yeah. to sort of communicate that fact. Yeah. wonder if he ever said like, okay, Denise Richards, Casper Van Dien. I, I, I think Casper Van Dien is actually quite talented. I've seen, him, be, seen, yeah. him, seen him do very good in certain roles and uh, Denise Richards, when she's in the right role, mm-hmm. c- can, can perform well. Yes. Uh, I, but I wonder if Bob Verhoeven communicated to them, I'm casting you because just because you look a certain way and I need you to behave empty, like behave in an empty fashion. Well, he got, he's a director. He got yeah. the performances he wanted out of it. You yeah. know, he might have he might have cast them because it was easy mm. for them to fit those roles. But, you yeah, know, but, it worked. But one, one last word on this letter. Uh, yeah. Southland Tales is on that. And I think Southland Tales... It, it, it's a it's a big vomitous splatter of a movie. It, it's just like it, it has it has so many ideas you don't know what direction it's facing. And uh, the, some people think that's a really fascinating thing. I, I think it's overabundance of ideas is actually kind of hurting it. I agree. Um, but a big central theme of that is how media has become so prevalent that how you present as a media personality mm-hmm. is now far more important than any kind of genuine self. And there's actually no genuineness in that movie. There's no authenticity left. And I think Richard Kelly is actually pushing back against something that we're facing in terms of what digital cinema is doing, and that is how much we value authenticity Mm. in the real world and how we present online. Uh, I had a conversation about this when um, 
Richard Linklater announced that he was making a movie over the course of 20 years. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, he's going to be in their 70s by the time it's over. Some of the actors are going to be in their 50s by the time it's over. I hope and, they all live. Yeah. And that's, 20 and years lot, is a long time. And a, lot, and, a, and a lot of people are saying, well, you know, what's going to happen in those 20 years? What if somebody dies? Is your production going to stop? And, and, you know, of course, uh, Linklater saying, well, we'll find, some, find a way. But what is what is the function of shooting a film over 20 years? And, of course, the immediate answer is authenticity. We want to see how a person actually ages, which I think is what he really got out with his film Boyhood. Yeah. He, he actually captured what it was like f- from a young person's perspective growing into college age. Like a, somebody – he actually was able to capture all, with a lot of authenticity a lot of these moments because we actually got to see characters really grow up. Not just the boy but his parents as well. I, I'm not as in love and, with that movie as a lot of other people but it, that's undeniably I, hypnotic. I, I am in love with that movie because yeah. I think he actually did it. The, the uh, effect is hypnotic and I would never argue yeah. that. I just think that by telling the story that way, what he lost was yeah. a sense of – uh, perspective and structure mm. um, that I think was is actually kind of necessary when you're telling a story. But, but regardless, but the think, effect is fascinating, I, and I, I, I still think Boyhood is definitely worth seeing. I think he's capturing life, and life doesn't have story and structure. And I, think, I think that's why we make movies. but I think that's why we make movies because because you you need to have a little bit of, of inauthenticity to accentuate the authenticity. No, I don't think it's inauthenticity. Mm. I think it's uh, a filter. Okay. I think it's a filter. I think it's a way mm. to view the world that is separate mm. from the chaos and, and okay, sort of yeah. inexplicable nature of reality that we see every day. We need to have things curated for us and okay. presented for us and like to show like for someone to make a point other than look at this kid grow up. And I'm like, sure did. Mm. Anyway. I, I, I value ecstatic truth, things that aren't faked in movies. And yeah. I, I think that's that's a very valuable part of it. And that's it's um the term ecstatic truth, I think, is a Truffautism. I, I think, uh, uh, as I think, the ultimate irony of Boyhood is that it is aiming for ecstatic truth while mm. simultaneously being a gimmick film, which mm, is uh, undeniably that, a certain that, amount of of geek factor. That's that's fair. But uh, yeah. back back to it was it merrily we roll along. Uh, uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah uh, this twenty year film project. By the time twenty years is up. And these characters have all aged, and Richard Linklater has aged, and he has this authentic piece that he's worked on for 20 years. Digital special effects technology will have advanced so much that maybe we can fake that. We're already we're, practically yeah, there. The Irishman's pretty convincing. It's, I mean, no, not 100%, I, it, but it's convincing. No, no, it's getting there. Yeah, like, after I, a while, I, saw, I was on board. I, I don't like the film, but The Lion King made some pretty authentic-looking fake animals. Very true. It's animated, one, almost, one. I think, there's one shot that's not animated. Like, the first shot, like, there's one panoramic mm. vista that is real mm. that John Favreau said he put in there, I think, half as a joke, but... I act, or not as a joke, as just a test to mm-hmm. see if he could get away with it. But I think it's there to ease us in. Yeah, I think it shows us one real thing, and then That's the next off. thing becomes more real because it's juxtaposed. Mm-hmm. Kind of brilliant in that way, actually. But um, um, but yeah, so digital effects are getting so good that authenticity is going to matter less and less. For some people, it doesn't matter already. You it's know, like the, you, you look at these big superhero things. It's like they're realistic enough now mm-hmm. that people are going to accept that as just what reality is. And that's kind of that that slight fakeness is something they value now this is, this, over authenticity. And yeah. once we can fake something with 100% accurate, accuracy, authenticity no longer has value. There is actually uh, – there's a movie I would actually have put on that list mm. that is not there. Uh, that is, I think, was largely written off when it came out. But I think if we all, and some people have been talking about this, mm-hmm. if we all went back and re-explored it now, we'd see how kind of ahead of its time was in the conversation it was having. And that would be Andrew Nichols' Simone. 
Simone is great. Simone is really Andrew mm. Nichol. Uh, it's also really is, funny, but yeah. it's actually really funny. Yeah, mm. it's one of the better Al Pacino funny roles. But um, Andrew Nichol is one of our more interesting sci-fi storytellers. Yeah. Um, he wrote The Truman Show, which mm. I still think is one of the best movies of the nineties. Um, didn't make my top ten, but mm. I still think it's brilliant. Um, he did Gattaca. Which is, I think, one of the better "quote unquote" hard sci-fi movies to come out of any studio system in a long time. More about uh, what they call futurism rather than sci-fi—that is, predicting the way things actually will be. Yeah, and there's an yeah. and there's an injection of some sci-fi technology in there, and mm-hmm. like the way that like uh, gene manipulation will mm-hmm. affect the way we have kids and what opportunities those kids will have in the future. And um, it's a very well thought out world. And mm-hmm. he made a movie called Simone. Uh, in the title, the the a letter I is a number one, and mm. the letter O is a number zero, mm-hmm. uh, because it's about Al Pacino plays a filmmaker who mm. is contacted by a entrepreneuring scientist who's dying, and mm. he wants to give his favorite filmmaker his greatest creation, which is a fully mm. real, completely un, you know untraceable to the naked eye digital performer mm. who can do. Anything the director wants mm. her to do, and he and her name is Simone, and he starts putting her in his movies, <coughs> and she becomes highly celebrated. But he doesn't tell anyone she's fake, mm. and people start acting like they know her, and like co-stars start talking about how we dated. Yeah, and then he starts he gets starts taking on a life of her own and turning a, mm. creating a new sense of celebrity, and he starts trying to sabotage her and like put her in bad movies so that people will reject her, but mm. people just connect to this digital creation <laughs> so much that it doesn't matter that she's fake. And she's not she's not artificially intelligent. Mm. She's entirely a tool. Yeah, yeah. But it doesn't matter. It's really it's, interesting. It's really interesting. It's a really interesting film. If you haven't seen Simone, mm. check it out. And when you hear like how they're talking about like digitally resurrecting James Dean for a movie, mm. um, all of that, it, Andrew it's, Nichol was on top of it. He was he yeah, thought and, it out, and all of that conversation is valid. And there's there's a lot of uproar right now because uh, Peter Cushing was resurrected for a Star Wars movie. Mm-hmm. Like they just digitally recreated him with the permission of his estate. He's already dead. He has no say mm-hmm. in this. At, at and, least yeah. his estate said, "Yeah." But yeah, I got to tell you, man, I was not convinced for one fucking second. The, not there, just because I knew he was dead, just because yeah. it doesn't look real. There there are a few scenes where they kind of hit it, like there's a reflection well, of him or he's in shadow, and that might work a little bit. But uh, there's a great. Uh, uh, I think one of the biggest mistakes Tron Legacy made was Mm. showing you Jeff Bridges before, like young Jeff Bridges Uh in the prologue. Because like from a distance, from a wide shot or in the shadow, I buy it. But then you see his face and I'm like, that's fake. Yeah, but in the in fucking the in the, the, movie, the grid, well, it's okay. It's okay that that he looks, looks a little fake because he's a program, yeah. so it's fine. That's but why, like, uh, yeah. if, when you watch the first Harry Potter film, a lot of those effects aren't so convincing because it's 2001 CGI. So there's yeah. like a centaur; it looks kind of weird. It looks um, kind of fake. Yeah, but it's a magical world. It's a fantasy creature. It's okay that those look a little off in a movie like that. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, Simone really sort of pushed that out and really kind of made uh, this this notion of making a fake celebrity into a real thing, a, a real idea we're going to have to contend with. Really got ahead of the and, conversation. Really And now that we're actually doing it, there's a lot of uproar. Yeah. That uproar is going to fade. It's going to go away. Yep. Somebody's going to do it. Mm-hmm. Whether or not people like it, People, somebody's going to make a film with James Dane. And, every, and pretty soon... Yeah. Every, every performer is going to have to have a clause in their contract about whether or not they're okay with it. No, we're not going to have performers eventually. We're going to be able to artificially create people from scratch, no. even their voices. Uh, we are, and that's and, going to happen, and I totally agree with you. Mm-hmm. However, I do think there will always be 
a market for authenticity. And I there think will. Gonna, and it's going to become a gimmick. And it's going to be theater. It's going to be live performances. Mm-hmm. It's going to be little tiny movies. And all of the big films that everybody's talking about will be entirely artificial. I hope you're wrong, but yeah, you're I hope, a really good. Chance I hope you're I'm right. wrong too, but I, I want it to be where I see things. I, this is a Hollywood has a history of we invent a new thing and we throw everything else out. Yeah, yeah and yeah. that pisses me the fuck off. If there was a tool in the toolbox, would we've been mm-hmm. using it as? We have digital characters in movies. We have Rocket Raccoon and mm-hmm. Avengers. We have uh, Gollum and Lord of the Rings. These are this is all fine. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's one tool that we are using. Everyone's using it with consent, um, and yeah. If we make the full transition, I'm going to be depressed because we should yeah. never fully transition out of well, storytelling modes unless that mode yeah. is in some way really yeah. negative and toxic. I, you and I have, have predicted this before, and uh, there are other critics as well. I, I had a conversation with a critic named Ashley Lynch on Twitter about this. Oh, she's uh, great. She's wonderful. And um, about how we're living through another 80s. And everything is really kind of big and blockbustery right now. That's what's leading the conversation. And there's a, there's a lot of indie presence, and you know the studios like A twenty four and Neon and things. Yeah. They're, they're there's still movies that are making interesting an impact, product, yeah. but there needs to be a surge in those kinds of movies paired with an outright rejection of the pop mainstream. Mm-hmm. And that's inevitable. And yeah. I can't wait for it to happen. I'm looking forward to the backlash. So we yeah. need every stuff that used to be counterculture, like mm. comics. And that became the culture. Mm-hmm. That became the mainstream. Culture mm-hmm. breeds counterculture because there will always be people who want something else. Subvert the dominant paradigm. Exactly. Right? Or the, whether it's entirely uh, cynical and they just want to make money by doing the different thing or they just genuinely find the mainstream boring and frustrating. There's too much of it. We need to make something exciting and different. We need to see the movies that we can't see right now because mm-hmm. all of these movies are dominating the conversation. I can't wait to see what that looks like. Because yeah, every yeah. time that happens, it, it's, cinema moves forward in leaps and bounds. Whether mm. it's Italian neorealism or the French New Wave movement or the... Uh, what, what, is there a name for like that um, director-centric cinema that emerged in the wake of like Easy Rider? Is there, like, oh, a, new, the, new Hollywood. Just New Hollywood? Yeah. Okay, I always forget that because it's so simple. Yeah. New Hollywood. All of these major ways of filmmaking, even the 90s with the big indie boom in the 90s, changed the way cinema worked mm. and eventually became very mainstream in some regards but that's inevitable and i want it to happen so bad yeah. i want some well, fucking i want like, the, the the easy writer yeah. the sex lies and videotape of this generation i want yeah. i want there to be a fucking you know it doesn't have to be from a24 but like that kind mm. of eccentric daring art house strange unlike anything else that's out there in theaters to make a billion dollars yeah and i want every all of a sudden all of these fucking studios who are investing in all of these like streaming services and ip pre-existing ips yeah like all the superheroes and i like superhero movies a lot you should know me by now if you're listening to this (laughs) podcast i like superhero movies a lot i don't want only superhero movies I want everyone who's been investing only in like comic books and cartoons from the 80s to go, oh, what they want is daring and interesting. Mm. And they'll start trying things that are daring and interesting. Yeah, and then eventually it'll implode because every wave of cinema implodes eventually. Yeah. Eventually we get tired of everything and we try something different. It needs to happen and we're overdue, I think. We're, we're definitely overdue. And, well, I think just the money has been pushing things forward. Uh, the internet is keeping... Th- it's really weird that the internet has allowed you access to everything and yet somehow the monoculture has become even more mono. 
Uh, In a lot of ways, because the conversation is being driven by one thing, and I think a lot of uh, advertisers have become really savvy about sort of manipulating the, you know, social media discourse. I think we we overestimated the interest people have in uh, Mm. everything. Mm. And there's there's always something popular. Mm-hmm. There's always something that's just in right now, but yeah, and that's, that's, idea, that's human nature. The idea you know? that everybody has an equal voice is complete bunk because of the way advertising works and the mm-hmm. way these social media platforms are manipulated and the way yeah. advertisers have been manipulating the way we think about things. You know what I hate? When you're, when you're on something like Facebook and there's like an option to see all comments or, <coughs> bless you, the most relevant comments. No, How the fuck do you know what's relevant, yeah. Facebook? Yeah, I know you have an algorithm. You fucking don't. Yeah. You don't know what's relevant to me because I haven't read it yet and decided that for myself. Mm. That's the kind of thing that is really dangerous. Mm. We have got to wrap this up. Yeah. Uh, this has been a really interesting pack. Of, <laughs> it's of been yeah, a lot, a lot of. Uh... We covered a lot of ground today, and I loved all of it. Thank you to everyone for writing in. Thank you to everyone who took us to task. We're all in the process of learning, and we really want to learn and become better people. It's sometimes you know. Mm embarrassing and I feel bad but like I'm trying I'm trying to become a better person and thank you for everyone for that thank you for everyone uh, for sharing your really interesting ideas thank you for everyone for asking for fun uh, recommendations thank you everybody um, for listening because yeah. you make this all worthwhile you thank really you. do. If we didn't have a great out. audience like you, we would have quit years ago. We're getting a lot of letters all the time. I've I, I've been bouncing around in chronology. I've mm-hmm. answered some letters from back in September and some brand new letters that we got today. Thank so you for curating keep, our letters, by the way. You're doing a great job. I'm trying, And I'm trying to catch up with as many as possible. Some are just like, you guys should do X TV show for Cancel Too Soon. And I, I'm not mm-hmm. going to read those on the air, but we do read them. We do, we do. get those letters. We do. Um, but yeah, keep on writing in. Keep on interacting with us. We really, really love it. The email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. And uh, we'll we'll see it, and we'll read it, and we'll interact with you eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So thank you, everybody, for listening. We hope you have a great weekend. If you're celebrating the holidays, we hope you have a really wonderful, uh, safe holiday, and you eat a lot of whatever delicious food you like. Uh, and if you don't celebrate the holidays, we have a wonderful, safe weekend, and eat mm-hmm. whatever food you like. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network with some more bonus content hitting you this week mm-hmm. uh, we uh, have the uh, our other show The Two Shot is on hiatus this week just because timing purposes made it tricky we'll be back next week over on the Schmoes No Network with a review of every single Harry Potter movie that'll be fun um, and uh, we're on Twitter uh, we're at Critic Acclaim and I am at William Bibiani I'm at Whitney Seibold and um, I guess that's that and I'll finish this awkwardly by saying sincerely yours Bibbs and Whitney Sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney.